Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Kat Cole, and Kat is the current president and COO of Focus Brands. She has formerly served as the president of Focus Brands subsidiary, Cinnabon, and before that, she was an executive vice president of Hooters. And in this conversation, we spoke about Kat's origin story, her genesis, and how she made her way up from being just a waitress at Hooters when she was 18 years old to eventually becoming the vice president. We actually started the conversation talking about her at nine years old, and we also spoke about her 16-year-old sales record. Kat is a just a beast and an awesome operator and a great person to learn from. And I'm better off for this conversation. If you have any thoughts or feedback about this episode, let me know on Twitter. That's the best place to reach me at Hey Danny Miranda. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you enjoyed this episode, if you could share it with someone you think will enjoy it as well. Thank you as always from the bottom of my heart for listening And let's get right into the episode with Kat Cole. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Kat, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I'm super excited to jump in and talk about what we're going to talk about today. I Me figured too. We, I figured we start with you at nine years old. And you got the, the famous story at this point. I've heard it so many times where you asked your mom, what took you so long to leave your dad? And you could maybe give some context for that story. And also, I'm really curious when you believe you first realized that it was time to go. Yeah. So the, the short version of the story is, uh, that my dad was an alcoholic. I'm the oldest of three girls. So I have two younger sisters and my mom came to me when I was nine, uh, with the eventual decision that we would be moving out and leaving my dad. And my response was, uh, what took you so long? And the point of the story that's often deeply explored Um, And that translates to businesses that people who are closest to the action know what the right thing to do is long before the leader finally makes a call. Uh, And, and for me, I mean, I don't remember, I was so young, you know, I don't remember the first time I knew it was bad. But I knew it was bad. (laughs) You know, I was in car accidents with my dad, he was never home, my mom was sad all the time. I saw he and his friends being drunk, like, you know, it's, (laughs) it's not hard to tell that that's not positive, good. Uh, or normal. So it was years prior to that. You're so open and vulnerable about that story and your past. Why? And was that, has that been difficult for you to be so public about your own past? No, it hasn't been difficult at all. I mean, the reason why is it's true. (laughs) You know, it's, it's true. Um, And certainly I realized that I wasn't the only one, you know, I saw other dads 
getting wasted, I saw other mobs crying. Like it was so obvious that I wasn't the only one. And so I didn't feel, I mean, I felt shame and embarrassment, but not to the degree that it made me want to keep it a secret. I knew that it wasn't my fault. I knew that it wasn't my doing. And so I, and I realized there was so much good that came from it. You know, I ended up taking on a lot of responsibility. I got to see my mom thrive and do unbelievably resilient things. And so by the time I was a, an older teenager or a younger adult, it was apparent to me that it would be a source of strength, uh, not something to hold me back. And I think it was easier for me to talk about it when I knew it was something that I viewed uh, as a benefit as opposed to something that was uh, shameful or that I couldn't get past. You know, I think that's why. Even when you were in high school and just starting college, did you have that same mentality of like, my mom left my dad and I'm open about it? Or has that been something that has been more recent? I have to think. I I don't think it's more recent. Um, but certainly when you're in high school, you know, it's not like you're giving keynote speeches all the time. <laughs> talking about it. So it's a different set of conversations. And as an hourly employee, I'm not walking around telling the customers I'm serving about that or my leaders about. So the question really is, when you're that young, what are the opportunities to have those conversations? And it's very different. Uh, But all my friends who came to my house knew that there was no dad. (laughs) You know, I was alone all the time. The parties were at my house. And so, um, so it was a, it was known. And and it was a conversation between my closest friends, but it wasn't, nor is it today, a dominant factor. I mean, that's my pinned tweet. It's the mantra I use, you know, don't forget where you came from, which is having these conversations, but also it doesn't define me. It is one small piece of a very long and still, you know, continuing story. Yeah. So let's continue on the story. And I want to talk about your sales job where you set the record at 16 for that position ever, and you're 16 years old, what do you think contributed to that amazing of an accomplishment at such a young age? So I was a part-time salesperson in the mall at a store called The Body Shop, Uh, not the cosmetics and lotion and bath bombs company, but it was a clothing company, a women's clothing company. And I was 16. I uh, was a salesperson and I don't know, I just, I loved it. I viewed it as it was my job to help people find what was cool for them. It was never sales to me. It did not feel like sales. I mean, we had contests and quotas and there was a sales structure around it for sure. But I really felt like I was the cruise director. You know, I was walking people around the store and here's what's over here and you should check this out and And of course, I would use whatever the promotions or incentives were, like I think it was buy three, get one free scrunchy socks or something like that. And and so, of course, you know, if there were incentives or bonuses or prizes around those things, I would use it as what to recommend. I mean, contests and programs like that work, but I didn't do it at the detriment of what was good for the customer. Um, and, And so that made a difference. You know, when people were around me, they didn't feel that they were being sold. Um, I helped them look good and feel good. 
and I had regulars. You know, I had people who I remember because I had that job for three years before I quit or two and a half years before I, I quit and only worked uh, at Hooters. At one point I had three jobs and that was one of them, but that was the first real like paying job that I had. And um, so I had regulars who for birthdays, holidays would come back and I knew their sizes and I had my little, my little book of my regulars information, my little customer cards, uh, because there was no CRM <laughs> back then. Uh, this was 90, what, 94, 95? No, 92. Um, and, and so between 1990 and 1992, you know, there weren't a lot of technological, um, tools like there are now. And so I literally had one of those flip Rolodexes with people's names and their sizes and their phone numbers. And um, so I built a regular base and made the most of people who popped in from an impulse perspective, built great relationships with other people in the mall. So people knew to come to me, you know, if they had a friend who was looking for an outfit and, and I wore the clothes. And so I was a walking ambassador um, for the product. And as a result, I knew how they fit. I knew the downsides. I understood how they washed. I knew, you know, it, I was just like all in on this company. I thought it was so cool to wear these fluorescent colored jean shorts and jean vest and scrunchy socks matching situations. Did you recognize at that point that you had some sort of gift? I knew that because I was so young, and part-time and was winning these contests, you know, against full-time people that certainly I was excelling, right? That was obvious. I didn't view it as a gift (laughs) per se. Um, It was just, it was very clear that I was better at it with less effort than people who worked more often. And I didn't really think much of it. And what did your friends say at this time? while you're making the more money than anyone else working there, even full-time. And did you tell them about that? Mm, not really. I mean, you know, they had some, they were hostesses in restaurants. I mean, we were at that point, lower middle-class or middle-class people. All the kids had a job. Everyone was working some hourly gig somewhere. So that wasn't unusual. Um, but I was certainly making more than most from, from the get-go. And I think the way it showed up is I just bought a lot of things for people. Like when we would go to out, I would be so happy to buy everybody's milkshake, or I would be so happy to pick up an extra um, CD for a friend, <laughs> you know, or whatever it was. So I was very generous because I, I made more than the average teenager, and I did not at that time have a really great mindset around saving and investing and, you know, all these things that are so important now. So um, I was was living large as a (laughs) 16-year-old. When did that change begin to occur when you started to have a better mindset around saving and investing and money in general? Way later than it should have, given how much money I was making. (laughs) so early. I mean, I made a ton of money as a teenager, relatively speaking, right? I was, I was the top salesperson as a 16 year old. I worked at Hooters as a waitress and I set the record for clothes open. So I was working a ton of hours 
at a restaurant that has higher than average tips for casual dining. So even then, you know, if I had had some education, it, I mean, it almost makes me nauseous thinking about what that could have turned into um, if I had had a better mindset around <laughs> investing. And, and then even when I became a salaried employee at the age of 20, I mean, that 20 to 22 was a really hard time for me financially. And I learned lessons the hard way because as a waitress, I was making between 35 and $45,000 a year, like part-time some weeks, full-time other weeks, and then 80 hours a week, other weeks. That's a lot of money for that age back then. And, um, you know, I was so used to, if I want more money, I can work more shifts, right? More work, more money. Want more money? Work more. Pick up a shift. Somebody always wants to go home. There was always someone who was like, oh, you want to take over my shift? Great. And I was just so willing to work. And so the, on one hand, that created a mindset of abundance, right? I didn't feel scarcity. I wasn't worried about money ever, even though I came from very poor, you know, a very poor background. But what it didn't develop was a savings mindset, an investing mindset, because I just was like, you know, work is the money tree. Uh, and then when I took the corporate job at the age of 20, there was no more cash. There were no more shifts. And it was a paycheck with taxes taken out. And so I took a uh, almost a 50% pay cut pre-tax <laughs> and then paychecks, not cash. And so here I was making, you know, call it 38, 40 grand as a waitress, cash. Uh, and, and then... I go to making 21000 per year salary, pre-tax, being paid every two weeks on a check. And I was not prepared for that like massive life event. I didn't, I didn't save. Uh, you know, I just didn't make the shift. And so I got a credit card. I got into credit card debt. Like by the time I was 22, I had the credit card companies calling like, you owe us money. You're late on your payments. And it was the worst feeling. I mean, I was scared that somebody was going to come take me to jail. I was embarrassed. Um, you know, it was very hard for me to navigate. And luckily, I was talking about it with one of my coworkers who had also previously been a waitress who had moved up into the corporate office. And she goes, Oh, same thing happened to me. Call this credit counseling service. They'll help you negotiate down your debt. They'll put you on a payment plan. They'll teach you some classes. And literally from that day, I never had debt again, ever not a dollar, um, not credit card, not car, nothing. I owe no one anything. And, um, and that, you know, that's changed a little bit as my husband and I have bought buildings and made commercial investments. But in terms of personal, um, it was such a painful lesson that I went to the extreme on, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to owe anyone money. And then as I developed more education on personal investing, on real estate investing, um, whether it's equities or angel investing, then, you know, then I got a healthier mindset around putting money to work and really playing the game to understand cost of capital and returns on capital. And, uh, but it took time, you know, it took well into my mid twenties and I had, you know, I was a vice president of a very large company at the age of 26. I was making I was making six figures from the time I was 24, 25 years old. 
and, uh, and, and man, you know, advice to anybody listening, if you're making that money, like put it to work for you. I mean, I did fine. <laughs> Everything turned out all right. Um, but it's wild to think about the compounding benefits that I missed out on because I didn't have the education and I didn't have the sophistication. Yeah, specifically, what do you what would you have told that 20 year old today, knowing everything you know now? I mean, given what was available then, right? It's not that was very different, you know, 1998, 99, 2000, I would have told myself um, to put easily 20% of my income into index funds. And just like, road the like look at what the market has done since 2000 oh my god um that alone right that simple simple thing would have been radical like radical um for me at that stage and i mean it's again it's all good everything turned out great um but that's what I would have told myself. And then, of course, I would have given myself all kinds of other advice now that I know the future, like go buy these domains, <laughs> you know, <laughs> go do these other things. Um, you know, but that, I mean, simply put your money in an index fund, look at what the market's done over time. And then once you get a certain amount of cash, go get somebody to help you be a bit more sophisticated. It's really interesting looking at your story because you've obviously done well financially, but it seems like you're never motivated by money. And that's an interesting way um, and juxtaposition because a lot of people who want money, you know, they go and get it. But you've said anything that tried to get me to trade off learning for cash was not an acceptable trade off then. Mm -mm. And it's not an acceptable trade off for me now either. Mm -mm. Where does that come from? It comes from I think the background with my dad and both sides of my family being incredibly poor and a good bit of it quite dysfunctional. And so I just wanted to be somewhere different the next day and the next day and the next day. And so um, that was learning, right? New experience equals learning. And, and now I know different for the sake of different isn't always best. But back then, anything, <laughs> anything, anywhere, any job, if it was different to me, that was like that meme, growth, <laughs> you know, it's growth. Um, and so it was like, yes, you want me to clean the bathrooms in a different store because it's a different store? Yes. Want me to go to Australia, even though I've never been on a plane to open a restaurant? Oh, of course. Why would I not do that? Um, and so that, the idea of being stuck, which is the way I saw it, that anything that was not growth was being stuck, like stuck in gross stinky, life-ruining mud. And and so that is why. Like the idea of having money and just being stuck in that gross, stinky, life-ruining mud. What am I going to do with all that money and gross, stinky, life-ruining mud? Um, and it was a very easy choice for me. And I, I learned to live so simply that, and again, no debt, <laughs> um, you know, that I could make those choices. And I was fortunate that I didn't have other responsibilities, you know, like sick parents or um, child responsibilities at a young age or other things that were a financial requirement of me, which some people don't have a choice in. And I got tight 
with my money and expenses. I still had fun, I still did things, but I worked all the time and I loved every single bit of it. And that gave me choice because then I didn't have to choose between paying the bills and learning, right? I was choosing between extra money and learning. And the learning eventually led to more money. And it became clear to me that these choices are a long game. You know, it's not always a short game. I mean, I, I was promoted every 18 to 24 months when I was at Hooters, but I barely got a pay raise um, a, across a good bit of that time. Once I hit the six figures, it sounds impressive, but the six figures didn't change very much over a course of certain years because it was just the, you know, the way of the company. But I took on a ton more responsibility and had so much exposure and things that I still draw on today um, as lessons in leadership that, I mean, a more sophisticated company would have paid me a little more, but I would have had nowhere near the exposure and the expertise and the experiences and the learning that actually set me up to be a president of a global company by the time I was 31. You know, so it all kind of caught up in the end. And then, then the, the money really started to come. Did you know at that time that what made you so confident to go into a new role with the same level of pay, basically, or a little bit more, and just having way more responsibilities? Why were you so willing to do that? Whereas I feel like a lot of people would be less inclined to that. You're not going to pay me as much. I'm just going to go over here. I'm sure it was a mixed bag. It was probably a little bit of the reality was I was very young. And so that's phrase you just used. Well, if you don't pay me more, I'm going to go over here. Over where? Like where, where, who else would keep me as a vice president at 26, having only worked at Hooters and pay me more? So there was a part of me that you can think whatever you want. I was not thinking highly enough of myself or I had imposter syndrome or I was, you know, uh, being my own internal saboteur. I don't think I was. I think I was pretty practical about the situation. Like I could see all the good and the benefits I was getting, in fact, because I was with the company that I was. And I knew that because of the way people reacted when they learned what I did at what age. And so, I, you know, there was a part of me that was like, I just need to stay here and like keep getting to do all this crazy, amazing stuff. Because until I get to a certain point, either of age or title or, you know, experience, this ain't happening anywhere else. And um, so that was part of it. The other part was I loved it. I love the company. I love the people. I love the variety. It was privately held, fully vertically integrated practically. And so the amount of variety that I had access to, from airlines to food and beverage to franchising, hospitality, supply chain, merchandising, sports marketing, all of that was under one umbrella. So again, you can pay me a little more and stick me in a more traditional company, but I will grow mildew. You know, I'll just like, again, stinky, life-altering, horrible mud. And so, so that's, that's why. Yeah, and it, it changed often enough, you know, to keep me super engaged. That business was moving so fast. I never had time to pause and think, I should be making a little more. You know, I couldn't even keep up with what we had to do and where we had to go. And because I lived very simply, 
it wasn't an issue. Now, that doesn't mean that when I look back, I don't see opportunities where I could have advocated for myself and gotten like five grand more here or 10 grand more. Of course, of course I could have done that. And yes, I recommend it for people. But the reality is that business was exploding. I was growing. Our teams were growing. We had a crisis du jour and an opportunity du jour, you know, almost every day. And there just wasn't the time or the space to think about those things. A phrase you often use is, I was growing and the company was growing. I've noticed you say that in almost every interview. What specifically about the growth were you going under? What, what was growing inside of you at that time? Well, when I use that phrase, what I mean is often people ask about my career trajectory and say, you know, how and why and why you and what's the secret? And, and my response is there are several drivers, but one of them is a high growth company because, and this is part of the answer to your question, because in a high growth company, there are more opportunities often than there are people to fill them. And certainly a company doesn't want to or typically need to fill all those roles from the outside. And in fact, there are benefits to having people from within the company matriculate and move up. Now, not everyone should move up. Not everyone can move up, which is why you also incorporate external hires. But growing companies typically produce disproportionate opportunities for those who are already there. And they are opportunities that you would probably not get if you left the company because you already have credibility. You already know the business. They're willing to take a chance on you for a new level or a new role. And that's what I mean by as the company grew, I grew, right? They needed leaders. I kept filling that space. Um, you know, as, as there was more space around me, I filled the space. And then the space got bigger and then I filled the space. And then it was a different space and then I, you know, like water, it just filled the space. Was it weird when you are peers with someone and then all of a sudden you're responsible for managing them? Was that difficult or odd in any respect? And how did you get over that? For most people, it is a very weird and uncomfortable situation. It happened to me so often, I got pretty comfortable with it very quickly. And I, I think at first I was so naive that it didn't feel weird. It should have felt weird, but it didn't. I was like, of course I'm in charge. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm doing great. Um, but then I was very quickly met with the criticism of my peers who would say, well, you can't tell me to do that perfectly because you didn't do it perfectly. And so I was instantly confronted with my own imperfections. And then I had to decide, how am I going to handle this? Am I going to go, you know, yeah, girl, you're right. It's all good. Like, let's just leave this place a mess and get out of here and go have a cocktail. Um, or was I going to fill the responsibility of the job, which is to lead and manage and hold people accountable. And I chose to hold people accountable, but not in a way that was do as I say, because I'm in charge, but rather, you're right. I wasn't perfect. I should have been better. I am better because it, in these early days, I would be promoted to be a leader, but I was also then still working shifts or doing other things as a peer. So it's not as if I left my peer responsibilities. It was often being promoted to a player coach, which is good in some ways and bad in others. It's good in that I'm like, look, I'm still doing this job. Like I, I haven't left the nest. I haven't forgotten what it's like, you know, to do this work. It's bad in the sense that 
you know, you are going back and forth. And if you don't handle it just right, you can lose respect pretty quickly and allyship of your coworkers. And so I wouldn't use the word awkward, although it is for so many people. Um, it was a privilege. I viewed my role of leadership as service. And so I think that that definitely helped me move through those weird moments very quickly because I didn't try to come in like a lid on their pot. I came in as like the fire under their pot, you know, like I'm here to make you work. I'm here to make you better. I'm here to help you like do all the things you can do as opposed to, you know, I'm here to put the smack down. When you were in those days of getting quickly promoted, do you know, or do you recall if you ever said to yourself like, oh, one day I'm going to be CEO or was it like more of a, this is just how the process unfolds sort of thing? Never said that. Um, other people said it to me. Mm-hmm. Like customers, regulars would say things like, this is back when I was a waitress, you're going to run this place one day. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I don't want to run this place. I'm here making money for college. I'm going to be an attorney. But thanks. Um, other waitresses would say, you'll be the president of this company one day. Never in my mind. It wasn't a desire. It was not an ambition. It was not a goal. But I constantly heard it. Same thing when I became president of Cinnabon. Multiple people would say, you're going to be CEO of this company one day. You're, you know, and I was like, that's not my ambition. I'm not, I am far more an opportunist um, and a discoverer and someone of service. And I'm driven. I have a force like behind me, propelling me, but I'm not the traditional uh, definition of, you know, a strategic careerist or ambitious like that's where I want to be. And now I'm going to make sure I hit every dot between here and there. And that's a good process for some people. It's just not my approach to life and the world. And so no, never thought it, never said it, but heard it all the time. What do you think in the early days specifically at Hooters, what do you think they saw in you that made them say that? I can look back now and see that they saw that I had an ownership mentality. I always had an ownership mentality. If there was something on the floor, I picked it up. If another table needed something, I took care of it. If there was something going on with, you know, something that was air quotes, not my job, I still viewed it as my job. I never said it's not my job ever, 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 ever. Um, And you typically only see that in like a founder, CEO, you know, someone who feels a sense of responsibility for every tiny piece of the business, regardless of their ability to influence it immediately or not. So that's why I I believe that's why that makes sense. Switching gears here a little bit, or maybe it's not at all. I read somewhere that you asked Ted Turner for a recommendation to business school. Mm -hmm. If that's true, how'd that go? And how did that happen? It is true. And he did write the letter. Uh, I have a master's without a bachelor's. And so the business school was taking a chance on me, you know, to admit me without the typical requirement. And I did have to take the GMAT and pass it with a higher than average score um, to prove some level of intellectual capacity. And, um, but I took it upon myself. They wanted recommendation letters. I took it upon myself to get 10 recommendation letters. And uh, one of them was Ted Turner. And it's one of these stories where, you know, I didn't reach out to him cold. Um, It's one of these stories where it is many, many seeds of generosity 
planted over many years. For years, I had been a volunteer in the State Restaurant Association, the Georgia State Restaurant Association. I had helped turn it around. I was the chair of the board of directors when I was 26 years old. This was three years before I would make this ask of him. And he, through Ted's Montana Grill, is a Georgia restaurateur, and so he cared very much um, about the industry advocacy, and he was really well aware of the work that I had done in the industry. I had held fundraisers uh, for political action committees at his at his home. Um, so there was a familiarity, and there were people between he and I, people who knew me more intimately and who knew him more intimately than I knew him, When that when I thought, who could I ask? I asked other people who knew him first, in addition to a friend of mine who is a very, very dear friend of his. And so it was easy for me to make the ask because I didn't feel of the friends because I didn't feel that I was putting them in a position for to ask for something bizarre. It was like, oh, this is an easy conversation for us to have. And so they had the conversation with him. One of them was very close with his amazing assistant at the time. Um, and I had the letter in 48 hours. And the other nine people you asked, any of them notable or interesting, crazy stories? No crazy stories. I mean, all notable, but, um, you know, more in the restaurant business. A man named Phil Hickey, um, who is a legendary CEO in the business. Um, several others that were involved in Georgia-based restaurants. A few of the most well-known restaurant consultants that I had brought into, you know, into Hooters, my own CEO at the time, you know, it was just a few rings out, um, the chair of the board and the CEO of the nonprofit, the Women's Food Service Forum that I was on the board. I mean, basically, it was many people who were in positions of power and influence for whom I had been supportive, helpful, had a long working relationship. There was no one um, that I asked to write the letter that didn't have some interaction with me to give them a level of comfort of putting their name on me. That makes sense. You know, a question I've heard you like to ask is, what do most people miss when talking to you? And I'd love to turn the tables on you. What do you think most people miss when talking to you? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, over time, I've talked to so many people with very different perspectives. It just depends on the length of of the conversation, you know, sometimes there's just not time, uh, to get into the nooks and crannies of experience. And other times people have a very particular audience type who prefers to learn more about brand versus leadership versus women, uh, versus investing. You know, I have all these different parts of me and certainly audiences and podcasts have a focus. Um, what probably doesn't get talked about enough. It's not that people miss it. It's just it deserves a lot more airtime because it is a constant need uh, of leaders is managing change. You know, just like what was going on? What was hard about it? What conversations did you have? Where did you screw it up? I mean, this, the more I have the opportunity to tell those stories, different ones, you know, not the same ones that people love to hear that get sort of repeated over time. But when I do my keynotes, when I have advisory calls with the people I advise in high growth companies. I go deep in these 
experiences that allow them to take out their own lessons. I don't tell people what to do, um, especially if I'm advising or speaking, but rather, here's what I did. Here's my experience. This is what I learned. And here are the many things I believe that means for the way things work today. And then people take out of it what they need. But just this, I was constantly managing pretty radical transformation. Um, And I mean, the CEO died at Hooters and all of a sudden his son is there taking over and then half of the executive team is gone and I'm left there managing it. And we decided to launch an airline, which was a really bad idea. And so I'm a part of the executive team when that happened. And then we shut down the airline and then we have to sell the company. And then we decide to add liquor to the company. And believe it or not, a lot of people don't know Hooters was only beer and wine for, you know, 20 years. And so adding a bar, like a proper bar was a major undertaking. Um, lawsuits with the founders of the company and then, you know, moving on to Cinnabon, leading through the recession, a ton of things we needed to stop doing, a ton of things we needed to start doing, Um, leading the industry in grocery and omni-channel activity. I mean, these are like high friction changes. It's like rough surfaces rubbing against each other with all kinds of sparks. Um, And so... I will often say things like chaos is my jam or um, I live for change. And and so we probably don't talk about those things enough because they aren't rare. Managing change isn't a rare occurrence. It is a constant state of being, this idea of movement, of inertia, of momentum, um, and of affecting, affecting velocity. You know, I'd, I am not a boat bobbing on the sea that I happen to have been launched into. I affect inertia. I can get rocket boosters in a company or I can put on vicious breaks, you know, when needed. And I can help teams learn to do that in a way that doesn't throw everybody out of the vehicle. Um, and, and I have all kinds of analogies for this stuff. Um, it, I think that just that topic you know, managing through change, affecting velocity, being really thoughtful about all the humans and stakeholders that are on that journey with you, whether it's a tiny company, a startup, if you're a creator and you're just working with some vendors, or if you are in a big company or leading a big company, it all matters. One thing that I noticed from you is just how skilled of a teacher you are. You have so many analogies for different things you talk about. And I'm curious what aspects you believe make for a great teacher? I think empathy. You know, teaching isn't about getting information out. It's about getting through. And if you really want to get through, that requires some level of appreciation and understanding of the listener or student or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, of their perspective and being really thoughtful about that. I know some people who fancy themselves teachers who go so fast and are so focused on just getting information out that they leave everyone behind. You know, if if it were a race, they'd be running really far ahead and they'd turn around and be like, where'd everybody go? (laughs) Um, And it's a relay and they actually need somebody. you know, to be behind them. Um, And so I do believe empathy is such a lead characteristic 
of a great teacher that there are many others, but they, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty distant behind that one. How do we get better at being empathetic? Live in other people's shoes. There is almost no way to accelerate empathy alone. You can only imagine people's perspectives and experiences so accurately. You know, you can only envision their view um, to a certain degree. And if you keep going, you're highly likely to be wrong. And so it's staying close to the action. I talk about it a lot. Stay close to the action. Be with employees. Be with customers. Don't just go shake hands and kiss babies. Don't show up to take a picture for the gram. Like work there for hours and hours and hours to where you're so busy you forget to take a picture. But don't forget because it's meaningful to people. Um, But it's an afterthought, not, you know, not the purpose. Um, That is it. Like you can't, most people can't help but be highly empathetic when they are in someone's shoes for hours, if not days. That's it. There's no other way. You're not going to read your way, you know, to being empathetic. It'll help. It'll help you like be reflective and open your mind. Um, Certainly when I think about all the books by Adam Grant, um, who I'm such a fan of, um, especially the most recent one, think again, like those type of books will help open minds, you know, and change hearts. But then you, the way to make the most of that is to walk a mile in, in their shoes and, and then decide what can you do with that empathy? To what degree does what you've learned have an implication on what you do or how you do what you do? Sometimes it doesn't. It's just, I now understand what it is like from their perspective. And I may not change what I do, but I may enhance how I communicate about what I do. Or you may say, oh my gosh, we have to, you know, radically change what we're doing. And the more empathy you have for more stakeholders, the more clear priorities are because you start to see patterns. It's like if you work with customers and salespeople and delivery truck drivers or students and teachers, you know, whatever the ecosystem is, the more of them you are with deeply in a compressed amount of time, it becomes more clear like, oh, four of these six stakeholder groups are all frustrated because of some missed opportunity with a particular area of the business. So that, if I do that one thing, lots of things get better. Um, Or you start to see a pattern like dots that have lines between them where they would just look like an individual dot and you would notice. But if you work with them and you talk to them and you ask them the same questions and I have my three questions, you know, what should we stop doing? What should we start doing? What would you do if you were me? Um, And and I ask them in different ways depending on the business. But ask everybody, customers, drivers, janitors, you know, whatever, product people, engineering. And then you find patterns. You're like looking for the constellation that is coming out and screaming at you with the bright, it's a bunch of stars in the sky, but all of a sudden it's like, do, do, do. Oh, that's a bear. <laughs> you know, we should do, we should, we should launch a bear. <laughs> um, and so that empathy is not as helpful as it should be without action, which is why I always talk about ask, answer, act, ask, answer, act like that's, but you've got to be with people to have someone to ask 
And then you've got to be open to the answers that they'll give you or be vulnerable enough to answer what they ask you and then act on the patterns. It's so fascinating because you optimized for change and you optimized to be in a different place, but that was also optimizing for learning and it was optimizing for empathy as well. It's, so it's, it's so fascinating <laughs> to me. No, it really just, it's crazy. So I'd love to talk about your mom starting her own state farm agency at age 60. <laughs> mm-hmm. how, does, how did that inspire you? Just, I mean, I, I don't even know if inspiration is the word. It is the word. It confused me. I was like, aren't you tired? <laughs> you know, you've worked so hard. Don't you want to just chill? And she worked in different state farm offices once she moved to Orlando and left her very tenured role uh, at the auto company at Toyota. Um, she started from the bottom again, which is what she did at Toyota and then worked her way up. And then she moved to Orlando um, where her husband's work, my stepdad, um, where his work was moving him. And he was an engineer for State Farm. And so she went to go work in a local State Farm office is very entry level. And then she started taking certifications to, so she could write policies. And then she was a, you know, a top performer. And she took those tests. I'm probably going to get it wrong. Took them and failed them. And then retook them three or four years in a row. I mean, just the resilience, the grit. I would have been like, I'm not very good at this. <laughs> time to move on to something a bit uh, with a bit greater chance that I'm going to get at it. But she was like, I know this business. I know these customers. I believe in this brand. I believe in this model. I know what to do even better than the current place that I work. I should have my own agency and I have to do this testing stuff and be interviewed to get it. And most of the people who get those agencies, as you can understand, are in their mid to late thirties. Because State Farm's got to make a bet on future longevity and, you know, what is their investment worth? So for her to get it, as someone who is almost twice the age of other people who are typically awarded these things with nowhere near the education, um, is that is the part that is just super inspiring. Like how she just kept after it because she knew she could do it better and wanted to. And she's been... You know, a small business owner for five years now. And she was diagnosed with breast cancer literally right when she was supposed to open her business, her brand new business. And it was just watching her navigate that. She's five years cancer-free now. Um, you know, just watching all that. I'm like, I am not worthy. <laughs> when your mom gets diagnosed with breast cancer, what is your first reaction? And like, how do you help navigate that situation to help the most? Empathy is probably the answer here, um, which is I know her and I know what she wants and what she doesn't want. And she doesn't want to be preached to and she doesn't want to be pushed in a direction and she doesn't want to be told to cry about it. And she doesn't want to be told to, you know, look into different therapies or methodologies. She wants you to get out of her way because she's going to take care of it and be there to support her through the journey in whatever way she needs. And that is what she wants. And just like anyone's love language, one of the greatest mistakes is loving people the way you want to be loved. 
instead of loving them the way that they want to be loved and leading them the way they need to be led and supporting them the way they need to be led back to this is empathy driven. And so it was just, I know her, I love her. I will be there. Um, I will point her to resources. I will support her in any way that she wants or needs. Um, but I also trust her. You know, I trust her mind. I trust her resilience. I trust her decision-making capability. Um, I do not need to unnecessarily interfere. And um, she was amazing. And I needed to offer more aggressively my presence and support because that may have felt like a big ask for her as I was, you know, really busy in my own right with a new baby at home. Um, so I, you know, that was one thing I knew I needed to do, like say, I will be there. I will buy the flight. Nope. It's no problem. Even if it was a challenge for me, it's no problem. I'll be there. I have two other sisters, but they didn't have as much flexibility, even though they were closer to her. Um, and, and so it was just, you know, knowing her and supporting her in the way she wanted and needed to be supported, not in the way I would want someone to support me. That's beautiful. So I understand that you have a, a new book coming out in early 2022, I believe. Next year. Mm-hmm. What's that book all about and, and why do you decide to write it? It is about uh, humble confidence. That's not the title. We have a few other working titles, but it is this framework of ask, answer, and act your way through life, through change, for growth, in order to constantly evolve and level up for yourself, your family, your team, or your business. And I am writing it because I have been writing it for a few years. And it's essentially a summary of the leadership lessons I've been sharing in my keynotes for a decade. And so every time I would give a speech at one of these companies or one of these events, people are like, do you have a book? And most speakers, like they're an author first, and then they go speak and so every speaker has a book. And I was one of the only ones that was out there sharing all these lessons from the heart. And then when people say, do you have a book? I'm like, no. Um, so now I have a newsletter on Substack um, called Checking In. And I have this book that will be coming out. And I'm a bit more active now on social platforms like Clubhouse and Instagram and Twitter. And am doing my part to um, capture those lessons, memorialize them and share them in different mediums. But certainly... Uh, putting it in a book will be a, a helpful place to have many of them archived. And a book format is is one for deeper dives. And you can only cover so much horizontal ground in a keynote speech or in an IG live or even in a podcast. Well, I'm excited to check that book out for sure. And I'll be reading it. Where can people find you further to connect? Uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm Kat Cole ATL. Uh, LinkedIn. I'm still very active there. Clubhouse, I'm at cat on Clubhouse and my newsletter, checking in on Substack. Awesome. All linked below. Thank you for your time, Kat. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, as always, for listening. It means the world to me. I'm so grateful that you got to this point in the episode. If you have any thoughts about this one, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda. And if you enjoyed it, please share it with someone you think will enjoy it as well. From the bottom of my heart, I, I truly appreciate you for making it to this point in the episode. I'm so grateful for you, and I will see you in the next one.
Peace.